Hey there, and welcome back to the Tech Veteran Podcast. This week, Mel and I talk to Chris Poulter, founder and CEO of OSINT Combined. This episode is great to listen to if you are thinking about or have ever thought about getting into a role in cybersecurity. Chris Poulter from OSINT Combined, welcome to the Tech Veteran Podcast today. We're really, really happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's really excited to uh, to participate. Uh, so OSINT Combine does some really cool stuff and you got some really, really cool toys. Um, so let's just start. Tell us your story. How did you find yourself studying counterterrorism at university? And what led you to setting up the OSINT Combine, you know, the whole solution approach to open source intelligence? Yeah, really interesting sort of story and, it, you know, diverted over time, you know, a number of different pathways. So I'll go sort of back to the start. I, um, I started out in the IT sector, uh, well before it was called cyber. Uh, and then after a series of uh, time there, more around IT security and infrastructure stuff, um, pivoted into the military and then spent a, a, over a decade doing that particular role. And then on the back end of that, identified something that I was really interested in, which was uh, open source intelligence. Throughout that time in the military is when I studied uh, counterterrorism to get a bit more of a macro perspective of you know some of the work environments and to to just broaden my horizons on an understanding of of that you know space that obviously the military works in, and I was also fascinated by international relations, so that was a, a key part. And I also wanted to refine my skills around critical thinking, and I thought university would, would be a good way to do that. So I, I found myself studying counterterrorism through. Um, through correspondence, I did the whole thing through correspondence over, over a number of years, which obviously takes more time. You're balancing that against deployments and and uh, and all, all sorts of different aspects. And then throughout the end of my military career, uh, like I was mentioning, I really got interested in open source intelligence, saw some applicability there, and uh, particularly around filling some opportunities for the training aspect. And so I started OSINT Combine and pushed that back into delivering training first, and then we eventually evolved into uh, tools development. So one of the things we looked at was how do we create scale and efficiency, and so we built our flagship product, Nexus Explore, and really to complement what we're doing with the manual training perspective, because something we, we like to do as an organization is uh, open source intelligence capability development uh, you know, with, with trusted partners. And so, so that was really where we started to, to cut our teeth. Uh, and then obviously getting you know, heavily involved in the, the two aspects for us are essentially counterterrorism and counter-human trafficking are the two lanes that we, we like to uh, play in primarily, but we, we do support a heavy uh, element in the corporate space because there's a, a big crossover between public-private partnerships. What happens in the corporate environment uh, bleeds into you know, things that relate to national security, but also just supporting those those businesses and those teams, you know, there's 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 a strong component there, and, and that's something I think would be good to talk about throughout the podcast today. Yeah, I, I, that sounds actually like a really incredible journey. Um, tell me what what really gets you behind OSINT? Why do you like it so much? You know, what was that initial sort of? Yep, yeah, let's do this. So it was sort of a paradigm shift as we came into the information society that we live in now is how much information is out there. And one of the things we looked at was, okay, if you can get 80%, and that's an arbitrary number, but if you can get 80% of what you need through uh, open source intelligence being, uh, you know, intelligence derived from publicly available information you know, at its core, if you can get 80% of what you need, it is only going to enhance 
the other aspects you might do in the intelligence sphere, or even outside of that, you may only have access to publicly available information. And you know, whether it's an organization or a government group, either way, uh, you know, being intelligence-led and having a good understanding of the operating environment and the people in your sphere, it's just going to uh, inform your decision-making cycle and, and make that more acute. So um, that is, you know, that's the backstory of what, uh, I guess, interests us in terms of how much information is out there, how do we harness that, how do we leverage that to the, the most effective manner, and how do we tie that from a moral and ethical point of view as well, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the current environment, operating in the privacy space and balancing, you know, those sort of two requirements, privacy versus security. Uh, yeah, it really just fascinates me, and uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity there on, um, you know, for, for people in both corporate and the government side to, um, to, to leverage that. Right. And talking about OSINT, can you give us just, I guess, an idiot's guide as to what OSINT actually is? What is open source intelligence? Yeah, sure. So it's intelligence derived from publicly available information. Uh, it comes in many forms, many applications. Um, it can be siloed and it can be its own form of uh, intelligence, if we talk about intelligence disciplines, that is, or it can be fused and interwoven into every other form. You know, people in the human space will, will rely heavily on information they can derive from the open source uh, environment to enhance what they do in that in that space. But if you're working in, in some groups or, or you know, the corporate sector, you may only have access to open source uh, or publicly available information. So you need to derive your intelligence from that sphere. Uh, so that is that's the crux of it. Now, in terms of many forms and many applications, it can incorporate anything from decision-making around uh, risk the business. It can be uh, decisions around how you look at uh, areas for emerging threats or, an, or you know, an event that has occurred, a high-profile event, say a terrorist attack or something. How do you use publicly available information? You know, simple things like the concept that every human is a sensor. You know, people are, will film something before they go and help someone these days. So how, do you, how can we leverage that information to support our decision-making cycle for uh, both awareness and, and, and response, if you're looking from a crisis perspective? It could be people working in banks, for example, and looking at it from a fraud perspective, you know, investigating uh, potential customers who have committed identity theft to rapidly check those. It, you know, it takes a lot of different uh, forms and, and, uh, and manifestations. And how that is applied is going to be different to every customer and every business. But at the end of the day, right. it's intelligence that has come from publicly available sources. So it's a super, I guess, useful and economic tool for most businesses to use. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's not new either. Um, you know, there's, there's more the vernacular around OSIN, whether it's used as a noun or a verb, you know, um, it, mm -hmm. it's probably more the branding side of it. But it's awareness and sometimes it takes... Uh, you know, the concept to create awareness around that uh, on the back of a, a, a label. And if OSINT's that label, then so be it. Um, but it's an extremely useful tool and you'll find most large organizations do use it. Uh, and a lot of people coming into this workspace uh, are not overly aware of how it is used because, it, again, it applies to every cornerstone, physical security, you know, uh, business intelligence from uh, dealings, due diligence, mergers and acquisitions to fraud and threat investigations, all the way through to counterterrorism and counter-human trafficking from that side. You know, it's, it's agnostic. So, I think what's running through my head with what you're saying there, uh, I can't help it. For a lot of people, open source intelligence and, and the, the concept of every human being being a sensor is quite confronting and quite frightening. 
So you get the picture of the, uh, you know, the, the half crazy redneck wearing a, a tinfoil hat so that people can't find out what he's doing and, and where he is. Is it really like that? You know, should people really be nervous about calling themselves an OSINT operator? You know, you mentioned ethics before and, and the ethics around what it does, you know. Should it be of concern to people to be playing around in that space? And should, should the ordinary person really be concerned about it, I guess? It's a great question. And it's a great topic, actually. Um, if you look at it from the concept, it, it all anchors back to intent. You know, people working in the security sphere, uh, people working in the protective space, what is the intent behind the actions? OSINT or you know, gaining information from publicly available sources is a method or a mechanism uh, to create an understanding of a situation or an individual or an environment. The intent is what drives that. So if people should absolutely be concerned about their privacy. Um, it should be at the forefront of everything they do, the digital footprint they leave online and how that can be leveraged and exploited. There is a balance between how we operate in the information society. You know, we've come accustomed to social media being the norm. We like the convenience of having content curated and delivered to us. Um, and so for the, for the individual, it's around managing what your risks are and managing your levels of exposure. And everyone will have a different variant of that. So people will set up backstops so for the things that they don't want people to know about them. Uh, and then they need to manage that on an individual level. Now, it's a great point around people playing in this space because our adversaries have access to the same information. And the adversary's intent is different, that they have access to the same tool sets, they have access to the same concepts and the information that people put out there. So for the, again, for the person putting their stuff online, they just need to understand and manage their own individual risks and how that might be used against them. And for most people, it's just normal run-of-the-mill stuff. You know, I mean, uh, for example, I mean, I have a, uh, a, an open LinkedIn profile and, um, you know, purports what we do and, and discussions and, uh, yeah, and that's all part of what the business is built on. And then I have a, a you know, more uh, private element from a, a social media perspective, which is, which is separated. And I manage those different aspects accordingly. Other people, public figures, for example, will have an extensive online presence. Uh, and, and they're happy to do that because that's part of their profile. It's part of their portfolio. Uh, and then they'll have their own backstop managed, um, you know, in, in accordance with that. Now, when you talk about uh, probably getting more into the extremist side, how that is leveraged and how that is used, you know, OSINT is just one form of intelligence discipline. There needs to be the anticipation and the acceptance that our security uh, agencies are doing everything they can to to protect us. You know, we we live in a, uh, a democratic society, and we we believe in and have trust in our our, our government and our organisations to uh, apply good intent in terms of you know the investigative practices. And uh, that's something that that we should be aware of. Uh, for people getting into the field, having awareness of those things is only going to enhance you know your own uh, ability to manage risk. Uh, I think those you know those delineations are important. So which, which sort of leads us into our next point is, is we take it down to an individual level for an OSINT operator. What kind of attitudes and skill sets combine to make a really good OSINT investigator? And how, so do, our veterans, got, how do our veterans fit into that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I've kind of got three, uh, three I guess, skills or attributes that, that I normally talk about. And then um, there's the intangibles, which we'll talk about from the veteran community, which I think are, are very important to call out. 
Um, the three top level ones are being inquisitive. You know, you, the open source environment or the publicly available information environment means uh, is so much information out there. You know, it's a plethora of, of data that people are trying to work through and data is the biggest commodity in trade these days. So the inquisitive mindset is all about how someone can work through or go down those rabbit holes, understand their boundaries, understand um, you know, which leads are relevant, which ones aren't. So an inquisitive mindset is the first one because the information is not going to be handed to you on a plate. You need to chase that information and connect the dots, validate and verify. That's the, you know, the key part. And all that comes from it's being inquisitive. The other one is being tenacious. Um, you're going to find, or people operating in this space will, will run out, you know, the runway will, will, will end. And so they need to be tenacious in pivoting to other areas, uh, looking at different information sources and, and having a real lateral uh, mindset in terms of going after and, and getting that information. The next one is being tech agnostic. You know, for digital natives, this is easy. For people who aren't comfortable in the tech space, um, they, they might you know, struggle to pivot into these new data sources because every time something comes up, they need to they need to learn something new. But I think you know everyone participating in whether it's CTFs or doing this live, it's not beyond anyone to be able to achieve that. So uh, having the mindset that you need to be tech agnostic, you need to adapt and evolve to changing technology platforms, the environment, identifying how you can create your own efficiencies. And that just comes with living in a, in a modern information society. So they're sort of the three things um, I think are important skills and attribute-wise. Then there's the intangibles from the veteran community. And these are your, your discipline around uh, staying true to a task, the integrity that you get someone who's served uh, and has put service before self. And these, these are often taken for granted by people in the veteran community. And then when they go up against their peers in the corporate space who haven't come from that background, it's really obvious uh, what defense and, and those sort of you know, organizations build into intrinsically into the robustness of an individual. Uh, and I think that veterans going into this space should leverage those intangibles. They're very hard to sort of call out and they're normally demonstrated uh, but if you if you can communicate them effectively and demonstrate that, you know, whether it's through the initial interview process or when you're in those roles, it becomes very clear very quickly people who come from those sort of backgrounds. So I think, um, you know, that, that, that's something that is uh, an opportunity for, for veterans looking at this space. One thing I think I found that anybody that's ever worn a uniform of any description, always talking about living and working in an information vacuum, you get used to fighting for information. You get used to being proactive to find that piece of information that you need when you're working in an information vacuum, which would, would you say that that's, that kind of fits in that situation? Oh, absolutely. And that ties into being uh, tenacious and inquisitive about trying to find more information um, and trying to validate and verify what information is given to you. You know, uh, echo chambers, uh, silos of information and like you said you know uh, different different points of vacuum where you need to go and find those bits of information uh it, it, it intrinsically builds out what veterans have from an intangible and they might not be completely aware to them you know at the onset so um yeah absolutely so you talked about just then the skills and sort of more importantly the intangibles a veteran has while working in an organization how can a veteran show a potential employer, <clears throat> sorry, a potential employer 
in the field in the field of cybersecurity if they want to get into a role in OSINT? So if they want to specifically get into you know, an OSINT role, there's a couple of things to, to consider first, and that is it depends on the, the role itself and the employer. I mean, one thing we've seen is the, 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 the macro or the, you know, the jack of all trades is less appealing to employers these days. They need people to specialise in particular areas. Now, when they go into those, then they're expected to do a broad range of skills. Um, so identifying and understanding uh, your operating environment first and what you're sort of getting into is, is important because that'll define, are you looking for an analyst role, an investigator role? Is it a combination of both? Uh, and they're going to drive what skill sets um, um, you know, the employer may want or what you have uh, most interest in doing. And so one of the things we look at is you know, test your knowledge on current trends, platforms, sources relevant to the organisation you're looking at. So if we talk specifically about uh, what an interview process might look like, test your analytical skills to be able to derive meaning from the information you find. And that's probably the key part, right? You know, it's open source intelligence, not publicly available information. It's not open source information as a role. So you need to be able to derive meaning from that. And those analytical skills are going to form a key part. So in the interview process, it could be like, okay, here's a, here's a, a huge amount of data. These are the, the tangibles that we found and we want to connect the dots. What is your assessment on that? And then you need to have an understanding of what analytical skills or process you've gone through to reach that. Um, you know, it can't just rely on gut. It's, it's, I mean, that'll form a, a part of it, but there needs to be some sort of function behind that. So understanding different types of analytical skills that apply to different circumstances um, will be just as important as being able to call out where to go and find the information. And so if people are looking for roles in this or jobs in this, having a good understanding of just basics around the Intel cycle and then being able to talk in depth at each part of that and why that matters. And, you know, if we, we look at that specifically, let's look at the collection side, right? So much information is out there. So you need to understand the planning and direction first, you know, so that'll be understanding the, the employer, the role. Then you go and collect the information. The issue we always have is there's so much data. So how do we data reduce? So the process and exploitation side, being able to talk explicitly to that, to an interviewer around why you need to do it. So if you apply to you know, a mergers and acquisition or a due diligence side. Let's just keep it in the in the corporate space for now, because every large organisation has Intel teams, right? Uh, and not everyone's fully aware of that, and they their only source of information is open source, or they've paid for commercial data sets. When they're doing that, you might need to work through and call out, okay, these are the sources I'm going to work through. This is how I'm going to uh, analyse or apply context to the information I've got, and my data reduction process is going to. Uh, form into valid, validation and verification. And then I need to actually make an assessment on the back of that. So being comfortable with what you're doing. So if you're going for a job that's in the financial sector, you need to understand business. You need to understand directorships and how relationships work, the crossover between uh, corporate and uh, personal, how those things uh, work. You need to understand the current context around foreign influence, how that applies to you know, the, the employer, what trade environment they're involved in. There's a lot of things to it. And so uh, one thing you do get from, you know, the university background, uh, which, um, which I think is important, is looking at those, uh, those macro perspectives and then going into the micro and being comfortable talking at the micro level uh, because that demonstrates depth of knowledge. You know, what, what we often see is inch deep, mile wide, or, um, you know, an inch wide, mile deep. You kind of got to be able to do the both in transition between uh, both elements because that is what's going to add value to an employer. And when they see that, 
they're going to couple that with all the background around integrity, discipline, tenacity, all those sort of things. And that's going to really matter to, um, to them and that'll make you stand out uh, from, from other candidates. I think the thing that I, I actually had a go at the uh, missing persons as a coming into it cold with an agnostic approach to the technology as, a, as an ex-logistics officer. And the thing that I found with it was actually I was really surprised just how much native understanding I had of what I was looking for. Now, my technical skill sets were rubbish. Um, I was far too slow, but I knew as a, as, a, as a veteran, had an understanding of what was going to be useful and what was going to be relevant. And from what, I, what I'm reading from what you're saying there is, is that a good OSINT investigator can't just sit in a little box you know, on his computer going, I only am interested in this or I only focus on that or I only look to this border and this boundary and no further. Um, have I got that right? Am I understanding that right? Yeah, absolutely. Because you never know, and this is something we talk about, particularly with our um, the way we build our Nexus Explore platform is you never know where the information is going to come from. You never know where the analyst needs to pivot to to go and get that next bit of you know, uh, connected dot, you know, that next tangent, that next link. Um, so you're, you're absolutely right. And it's, it's a great, you know, story. Like you said, it, uh, going in there with a tech agnostic approach, uh, understanding the problem set and then just working through it and then knowing what might be relevant, what might not be, because then you can actually go on. I mean, we can all learn tech skills. We can all learn how to create efficiencies that can be built, you know, over time. Uh, and you can build, tech solutions around that. You have teams that can build solutions around that. And this is one of the things around, you know, training versus tooling, the combination of both. Um, you know, there, there's, there's multiple avenues to it. And a good OSINT team with, you know, uh, mature leaders will be able to identify that and, and, and get the most out of the, the people coming into that workforce. So yeah, ab absolutely right. So we were talking about an interview sequence. We we're talking about building a portfolio for people to get work in the sector. The thing that's running through my head right now, what you're saying is that someone working in open source intelligence is never going to be bored. Uh, could you just run us through some of the kind of situations that, if, you, if you're happy to, just some of the kind of situations that someone might encounter day to day in an OSINT role? Yeah, I, again, it really does depend on the the job so we'll talk a little bit about people supporting um county trafficking or doing stuff in the missing person space so we'll start with that one uh the the role there uh and, and what you might do again it, it depends on the source of the information and, and what you're doing, how you're supporting it if you're working with uh ngos that are, are, are tackling uh, particular cases it could be a case of geolocating uh, different areas based on very limited information. It could be pivoting or looking at entities or individuals based on things like usernames, based on, you know, maybe it's a forum post that someone has, has given uh, you know, information through to. Now, NGOs often work in, um, on their own individual cases, they have different perspectives on how to tackle the problem set. It's a challenging one uh, because uh, a lot of them obviously working uh, from the donor perspective. And so, you know, operational security is important. Uh, and they, they operate, you know, in different regions, different parts of the world. Some people or some organizations are focused on the, the prosecution side. 
uh, and uh, they're only interested in tackling cases where there is a tangible prosecution at the other end. And so for those ones, the chain of evidence and the OSINT investigator in that, in that case will have a very different approach to the information they collect, the diligence they apply to uh, making sure the evidence uh, stacks up in court and they need to uh, apply, you know, a, a, an element of their own protections for, for how that looks and, and applied by you know, different policies and procedures. Other NGOs, for example, might focus on uh, victim recovery. So it's less about the evidentiary side and it's more about how they can identify potential victims, intervene and support through you know, mechanisms they have on the ground. And, um, and like I said, there's, there's a heavy amount of programs, particularly throughout Southeast Asia, that, that focus on uh, these things. And the OC, uh, analyst or, the, or investigator may need to pivot on a number of different things from geolocating areas uh, and, and activity through to understanding more about an individual or an organisation, which may be down the prosecution chain. So that, that can vary. Switch uh, gears a little bit. And if you're supporting the corporate environment and your job is as an OSINT analyst to support fraud in a bank, for example, or, um, you know, money laundering or, or identifying uh, identity theft as part of, of cases that, that present to you, you'll be more entity focused, so individual focused, because you'll be looking at the information presented to you. Um, you will need to have a very robust understanding of all the privacy laws that are afforded to you or, or afforded to uh, the, the population. Uh, those will be governed by the organisation you work for and, um, and that will be part of those internal practices and procedures. The auditing around that, the, the, the uh, uh, accountability for the individuals doing those, those different jobs. So your day-to-day -day role uh, may very well involve as you know, someone comes through with a, um, with a threat or you know, they might have made a threat against an organisation, for example. And then you may need to run that to ground to one, validate and verify whether it is an actual threat, put that into your risk matrix who you then, uh, uh, how you bundle that up, the evidence side of it to then potentially pass on to law enforcement so they can uh, take that further. Obviously, law enforcement have uh, limited resources and so they can't be chasing down every single thing that comes through it. So there is a, a first pass where an OSINT analyst may spend their time looking at that. And that's probably more in the, the physical security space. Uh, it could be um, if you're working in, say, for a, a think tank, it's another role for, for analysts. Uh, and this is something where, you know, there's a lot of uh, appeal for potential veterans. You might work for a think tank that spends their time looking at terrorist groups. And so your information is no longer afforded to you by uh, intelligence organisations with, with secret information. You need to derive what you can from public sources. And that could be anything from uh, academic sources, fusing that with uh, data sets that are available, then going into the social media side to understand what is the sentiment and the activity of a group at a particular time. And this can be anything from uh, extreme right-wing activity to Islamic extremism. It, it doesn't matter. The approach can still apply, but the analysts will then spend their time understanding the operating environment first. They'll understand the demographic of the people involved in those groups because that will define which social media platform, for example, they go and look into. You know, if, if, uh, most people just jump on and think you can start looking through Facebook to find stuff. But if your demographic is from, you know, other parts of the world, Facebook may not have a penetration there. And so you need to understand that operating environment first. And then that'll, that's where the analyst will spend a lot of the time is building up, okay, where am I going to go and get the information from? But then they'll go and get it and it'll tie into more of that traditional analysis cycle. So they'll spend their time analyzing the information like you would in a traditional Intel analyst role. 
for people coming out of, you know, veterans coming out of uh, roles where they've been an intel analyst in defense, they may find themselves doing something very similar in, say, a think tank, but a heavy part of it is how they go and get the information from publicly available sources rather than having it given to you uh, to then fuse across, you know, multiple different disciplines. So uh, you kind of got to, uh, you know, stretch out a little bit and do a little, little bit more things. But I hope those sort of three examples, um, you know, provide some perspective that it's, like you said before, it's, it's, it's never the same. You're never bored. There's, there's endless opportunities because at the end of the day, you're looking at publicly available information. You're trying to uh, create information to support decision makers or to inform the public. Uh, about the, you know, the things or you know, people within an organisation about the things you've found. So, um, so, yeah, it's quite an interesting field and it, it really is endless. So can I just say, Chris, one of the themes that seems to keep coming up in this podcast is that ability to fight the battle on a different front and still do the things that you signed up for but be doing it a different way and making a contribution in a different manner. And I often find myself wishing that this podcast was a video podcast because I've, I've, again, I'm watching your face when you're talking about what you're doing and what you're doing clearly floats your boat. You clearly love what you do. You, you light up with enthusiasm when you're talking about it, which I think is a really, it, it's a little bit of a shame that it's not a video podcast in some ways, but I do always like to point it out. And there's that big grin again big flashy smile, which is really, really wonderful to see. So we're going to make a little bit of a switch at this point. This is a Tech Veteran podcast. We are talking about the contribution that veterans can make in technology and veteran spouses can make in technology. So what would you say is, is the most exciting technological development or development in technology in OSINT right now? What's the thing? I don't that... know if it's, if it, yeah, I don't know if it's exciting or concerning or challenging. I think there's, um, there's a number of things to it. And that is, yeah. you know, the, the obvious cornerstone is artificial intelligence and how that uh, supports the decision-making cycle. Um, so I think as a, as a cornerstone, uh, it's really fascinating. So if you look around the two key aspects that, that people look around. One is sentiment uh, from mostly text-based analysis and one is uh, facial recognition and facial verification. Two challenging, very different forms uh, or applications of artificial intelligence. Uh, most people's understanding of artificial intelligence uh, is driven by you know, things that are out in the media and how AI has been used for this. When where we are in the evolution of AI, you know, where we use neural networks has been around for a long time, but it reached a, a tipping point where um, uh, data processing and data access became or made them uh, trump the rules-based version of AI, which is what we, we had back in the 80s, etc. Where that leads us to now is uh, the challenge between, say, text-based work where there's a lot of... Uh, focus on sentiment side, but our colloquial tongues still challenge significantly the validity of uh, macro AI analysis for text-based stuff. You know, a bit of a mouthful, but it's... Um, so when you see things like uh, uh, sentiment analysis on a grand scale based on text analysis, you really got to ask some significant questions around what that means, because 
if it is done on what language, what data set is the AI has, has what machine learning has gone into what data set and what is the extent of that? And so is it real? Because, you know, there's the way we speak in, uh, you know, our, in Australia versus the US versus English, uh, sorry, versus England from, uh, from a English perspective is already significantly robust. Then you throw in other languages. So I always question when I see sentiment at a macro perspective, and I know marketing companies uh, spend a lot of time looking at this and it, it probably paints a, a okay picture. But if you're looking at it for things that are really important for um, identifying threats or identifying things that need to be investigated, if you're looking to get those answers from some AI system that's gone through and, and identified that, you, you're probably going to have gaps. It also doesn't tell you along the way how it got there. I, I still believe in the analyst being equipped to draw their own conclusions, create scale and efficiency in what they're doing with tooling, uh, but they're able to follow the breadcrumbs because the breadcrumb can be just as important as the end state because they're the tangibles that you're going to go down you know, at a different path. Um, and so I, you know, I look at AI from that perspective. Then I look at it from the object detection for the image analysis, and it's excellent, right? It's um, its ability to verify and identify faces, uh, its ability to identify objects and imagery. You know, IBM does uh, you know a great deal of work in that space. Uh, they're, they're sort of you know the leading front. You, then you got free tools around uh, Amazon, Google, uh, Microsoft Azure. There's there's plenty of platforms out there that you can leverage to learn and understand this space. And obviously, their data sets are exhaustive. Um, so that's quite fascinating. Then you look at some of the Eastern platforms where they have extensive amount of data because of you know, some of the, um, the, the requirements to have particular social media platforms in those countries. Um, it gives them a data set to be able to run AI or machine learning, I should say, um, so that their artificial intelligence is probably at a, you know, further down the road in terms of the meaning they can derive from it. And, so I think and, only, and only one place that they have to look. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah. a universal. I mean, and that's how you build, you know, universal credit systems and things like that. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a really fascinating space. So I, seeing how that evolves, but also seeing how we challenge that, because going back to the very start of where we are with AI, we're in the age of implementation, and this is going to give the people, you know, researching AI breathing space to go and look at that next thing. You know, we're obviously a long way off from general AI and, and those sort of aspects, but. Um, the age of implementation where everyone's using these platforms and these systems, the data's there, uh, is going to give breathing space for the researchers and the, um, the people in that space to go and find that next thing. Uh, and that'll be quite interesting. I mean, it's companies like Rosette who do some great stuff around um, language processing and they're, and they're quite advanced. So uh, it's a, I, find it, I find it interesting. Uh, where we sit as an organisation, for example, you know, with our particular platform, we believe in creating scale and efficiency for, for the, uh, the operator. Uh, without disrupting their workflow and allowing them to see how they reach the conclusion. Because the other part of it as well, if you rely on AI to give you an answer or lead you to the threat, and then you need to go and brief your detailed understanding of that, if you've applied no effort to uh, where you got to that conclusion, then how are you going to talk with that depth of knowledge, which allows decision makers um, to, to be informed? And to them to make a, a sound and you know moral and ethical decision around something um, that was presented to them. So you know they're, they're, it's quite an interesting space, and um, I'd say that's what I'm looking at right now. But like I said, I don't know whether it excites me, whether it is a challenge, 
uh, or, or whether it's just an opportunity to, to work on. I mean, we use AI within our platform extensively, uh, but we also allow you to, to bundle out and, and separate those things out because it's, it's quite interesting. Now, if, if I've understood it correctly, the idea of textual big, textual big data analysis and identifying sentiment from textual big data analysis quite literally comes down to the AI going through every word and counting the number of instances, the number of times a word occurs. And as everybody keeps saying with AI, it needs the person in the process, which if I've understood you correctly is what you've just supported. It needs the person in the process to actually work out what that means. You know, the, the AI can do the heavy lifting. It can do the number crunching. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's um you still need the human to run their eye over what, what information is presented to them, um, yeah. to challenge it as well. And, and even from the you know, the count based system of, of big data looking through and counting the amount of times a word comes into it. But then you look at the variations of words, so the smarts around that. And and IBM yeah. is probably the leader in terms of um, context based reasoning, which is you know, that next phase of of what happens in, in text. I mean, when we look at the search engines, for example, now, um, Google has BERT, Baidu has a similar approach, and that looks yeah. at the words surrounding a, um, uh, a search term for directional uh, perspective. Context, yeah. Great context, right? So, yeah, yeah it's, uh, look, it's, it's really interesting to see where, where this goes. And, you know, the companies that stay ahead of that context-based reasoning uh, are obviously going to be leaders in the space, and they're also going to support the decision-making, you know, more effectively. But the human still needs to validate it because we're not at a level of, of, of general intel general artificial intelligence, you know, uh, in the current form. And you don't need to be a tech geek to do it. <laughs> no, no. Uh, the, uh, the the human uh, intuition is something, you know, uh, intuition and consciousness, you know, AI doesn't have that. And that's what, you know, our understanding and that context around it is, is going to be derived from a lot of that. So, um, so yeah, no, the human's critically important and people shouldn't be too concerned about uh, uh, whether they have applicability. You should see tools to create efficiency, not to replace you. That's the way we look at it. And one of the things that Ollie and I uh, keep finding, we're finding at the moment that, that or, we, or we will both openly make the statement, is that the CV has less and less relevance. And what you referred to before is that for, for a veteran going into looking for an OSINT job is that requirement to demonstrate that you can do and demonstrate that you can understand rather than to have a piece of paper or a, or a, or a CV behind you. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting. So it's, it's, I, I see two parts of this. There's the, the first part is the CV, the person who's going to review it. And unfortunately, the mod in, in large organizations or large recruiting firms, um, AI has been used to filter CVs before they reach that point. And so... I, which is, which is counting words, which is counting words and ticking boxes. Yeah. So, so how do you weaponize your CV so that it gets to decision makers so then you can have your opinion and then you demonstrate it through who you are not not what's written on that piece of paper so um, you're reverse the, engineering you're trying to reverse engineer the ai just to get your cv through to a person yeah i think that needs to play a role but in doing so 
that's a valuable exercise in understanding AI. It allows you to talk extensively and with depth during the interview process anyway. And it's going to allow you, I mean, you could t even talk to, with more understanding there around how influence operations work, how uh, disinformation campaigns spread on social media, all those sort of things, how the algorithms work against you or for you. So by understanding that, even though it's rudimentary in terms of, hey, I'm just trying to get my CV over the, over the line, if you started with that and understood how to get to those points, it can lead into you know, a multitude of other opportunities. And, and that itself is a fascinating space, um, you know, to talk for days on. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's interesting. But then once you get into that process, it's less about, you know, what you've, what you've got on your CV. And it's more about demonstrating your value. And, for example, um, the last three people uh, I brought into my organization uh, didn't see a CV at all, uh, not interested. I, I had recommendations provided to me. Um, and then other people I went and observed and then they, I reached out to them and it was through a discussion with them. Uh, some of the things we ran in the, in the, depending on what the role was, put the, uh, asked them to do a task and, you know, there was no guidance or direction around the boundaries of that. It was like, Hey, uh, and this was, this was demonstrating a number of things. What is, what is the questions they ask? What is the disciplines? What is the, how are they looking to morally and ethically tackle this problem? How are they looking to um, solve what is not being deliberately laid out for them uh, again information vacuum which you spoke about before so that's a, that's that's the process we've taken because I, I value the individual and, and what they can provide and then what their potential is down the track as well so um and, and that is more valuable than than having a formal qualification in something uh that's not to say that formal qualifications are, are not worth uh, not worthwhile it's more about what you get out of those qualifications so we spoke about the university side before the thing i took out of university had nothing to do with the degree at the end of it. Uh, I took out of it was a macro understanding of international relations. I, I thought that was important just to broaden my uh, immature understanding at the time. And then the critical thinking skills. Um, that were the things I took out of it. Uh, you know, the fact you have a degree is, is probably less relevant. Um, and so they're some of the things I look for. And so, no, it's a, it, it, it will depend on the employer, unfortunately. But, you know, they're the things if you want to, you need, you need to choose who you're working for as well. You know, it's not just them choosing you, it's you choosing them and making sure you're the right cultural fit and, uh, and those sort of different things. And, and the company aligns to what you want to get out of it. I think that's a really good point. Uh, I found myself explaining to a young girl just about to enter into the, the, the job market the other day, uh, a particular post that she made on Facebook. And I said, mate, just have a bit of a think about this. So I've got to ask the question, you know, do, employers employ, do employers engage in contract people in your field to, to run searches on potential employees? Is it legal? Uh, is it done? So I, I can't speak to the legal side. Uh, anyone who's selling solutions that do this or anyone who's uh, been contracted out will have to abide by the Australian Privacy Principles and, and the Privacy Act and all those sort of different things. So, you know, you're not going to find organisations, uh, you know, it'd be very rare that are, that are, are legally uh, doing the inappropriate thing. In terms of are those services done, so pre-hire screening um, uh, absolutely is, is part of different organisations' processes. There will be varying degrees to that. It will depend on the organisation. There will be levels of authorisation that are required, um, similar to getting a police check or a background check on an individual, or if you're going for a government job, a, um, uh, a security clearance approach. Uh, for a corporate organisation, you know, they may have checks and balances along the way. 
Um, then the context that's derived from that. So, you know, when they see, a, say, a particular post about a particular thing, how does that relate to the organisation? How does that, in, you know, provide risk to reputation potentially for that the employer? Um, people should be aware of what they put online. Digital footprint checking uh, platforms exist um, and, and they will be used by various organisations. And for an organisation, it's not about trying to discriminate. It's about trying to identify uh, points of concern down the track or if, if that person um, is, it's, it's no different to the interview process. You know, they're trying to, to go and have those discussions to understand the individual. Uh, what I would like to, what I'd hope is that if an organization does those things and, and screens, you know, obviously the social media aspect or what people are posting is having a discussion with the person around that, not just using that as a decision-making point because people will post things or, or think, you know, from way back in their life, uh, they might have a particular perspective that they believe strongly about that might not nest with the person, the interviewer, but it may also not have any relevance to the organisation. And so, you know, people have a right to their opinion. Uh, and, and what I would hope for employees, if they do do that stuff, that they are having those discussions based on what they find, not using it as a sole decision point. Uh, but yeah, I, it's anticipated that, that organisations would be doing those different things. So, Chris, we have a question here on the Tech Veteran Podcast that we ask every single one of our guests. If you could say anything to a veteran or a military spouse right now living anywhere, what advice would you give them if they're transitioning or if they're already transitioned and stuck in a dead-end job? It's a fantastic question, and I've asked it myself. I went through that same process when I got out, and the, the simple answer is define or identify what your purpose is. What gives you purpose? Because that will lead to everything else. Um, you, you said before, so if you, you can say, I, you know, I'm passionate about this stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm excited with what we can do and how we drive that back in. My purpose is doing anything we can to support the national security mission. That can be... Uh, working with corporates, that can be working with government, that can be working with uh, whether it's stuff in the county, human trafficking space. Things are ultimately interlinked and interconnected. Um, and my purpose is anything we can do to support that apparatus uh, and continue to contribute to, you know, something bigger than an individual. That's, that's the purpose I, I found. And so for anyone who's particularly sitting in a dead-end job and you're, you're not happy then the purpose of why you're there, you know, you should be, should be questioning that. And, for, and that's going to ch uh, be different for every person, you know. Some people, their, their purpose uh, or the, the, the centrality of what matters to them is going to be different. So uh, I'd always ask that question. Uh, if, it's very hard to identify. So, well, for some people, it's easy, you know, based on, on, on um, you know, their drive and their motivations. For others, they may need to go through a series of, of you know, exercises or, or iterations before they identify what they're, what their true purpose is. But if you don't have that, then you're not going to wake up and want to go to work, um, you know, because you want to be finding a job where uh, it's not a job, it's part of why you exist um, because it takes up so much of our time. Easier said than done, not not pretending that that is something, you know, anyone can just roll over and, and, and do. Uh, there are realities around it. There are stepping stones. Being, uh, having expectations around what you may need to do now to get to where you're going, but if you if you plan that out and have a purpose, uh, you'll you'll be happy with the trajectory that you're you're taking, and you'll have it. You'll have a pathway. Chris Poulter from OSYNC Combine. 
thank you so much for coming on the Tech Veteran podcast. So anybody who's interested in finding out more about what Chris does and how he does it, Chris can be found on LinkedIn or you can contact him via the website or find myself, Mel O'Sullivan or Ollie Pulaski, either on LinkedIn or through the With You With Me site. Thanks so much for that, Chris. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun and that was a really, really interesting session. Thank you. Thanks, Mel, and thanks, Ollie, for having us. Really appreciate it, and, and good luck to all the veterans. And, and like you said, reach out. Always happy to help, provide advice, uh, and be engaged in these conversations. And, and well done to you guys for all the support you, you provide the veteran community. Thank you. So, Ollie, we'll stop the recording there. Ollie will edit that out. Um, you made that really easy. That was really good. No, it was that good. Thanks really for good. having us. I mean, that's a really cool topics there to, to deep dive in um, and particularly, you know, just if veterans can, I, just those intangibles, I mean, if they can get those across the line and get after it, like there's just so much, there's so much fun to be had in the OSIN space. So the more people can get vets involved, that's, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole the whole point of the podcast to do the, and I'll keep talking while you've got time, but the whole point of doing the podcast is that for myself personally, when I transitioned uh, it wasn't voluntary and I had no idea what jobs were out there and what careers I might suit to. And, and, you know, Tom sort of gave us the go ahead to explore all this sort of stuff and talk to different people and just record different perspectives on the kind of jobs that are out there that people can do and, uh, and just get talking and get talking about it. Um, yeah. Cause I, I ended up in a job that, I finished up, well, I ended up in concrete manufacturing and, and ended up hating the job, mm -hmm. hated it. Um, so that that point about purpose, you're, you're the first of our guests who's actually mentioned that point about find your purpose, which I think it was just fantastic that you said that. Um, I had to get through and, the same process myself. Was, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah we'll, it's not easy. Hard charge. No, yeah, no. It's, uh, if you don't have it, like it's just you wake up miserable and and you know, yeah, it, it's it's that's the thing. It's the expectations around what that challenge is. But now it's as soon as you get that, and I see it with with a lot of friends that sort of get out is they choose to get out or like you said involuntarily, whether it's medical or, or for whatever reason. Um, it's what's that? You know, how they're going to define that? And some of yeah. them will do something thinking that is their purpose, and then they'll change later on when they realise it's not. Yeah. But it's, it's a series of iterations. But once you get it, then, you know, you can get after it pretty aggressively and apply everything we've taken for granted in defence and just throw our weight behind it yeah. and you have success. So, yeah, yeah. no, nah, it's good stuff. Cool. So one, one thing I did want to ask, what the opportunity to ask you, and uh, I hope you don't mind, what was it that you started up OSIC Combine? You were the one of one of the founding people. I am the founder, yeah. Um, what was it made you go it alone? And, you know, what kind of challenges did you face? What, why? Why, why? why take that path? Yeah, I mean, straight off the bat, uh, I wanted to be in charge of my own decision-making cycle. Uh, I wanted to add value back into the national security apparatus. And I, I felt the reason, one of the reasons why I got out, um, which in one of the podcasts was, you know, I felt you can add more value sometimes, depending on your circumstances, from the outside back in. Um, so that was one aspect, to, or the two aspects to it. Um, I I have a strong combination of tech and and those sort of things, so I felt I could just get after it. And, and I wanted I wanted to push the limits on what I could um, what I could achieve. I didn't want my wings clipped by you know 
uh, someone else. And that wasn't because they wanted to clip, you know, my wings or, or anything like that. It's because when you work in large organizations or even small organizations, there is a limit to what you can achieve. I wanted to be able to drive forward what we wanted to get after. And I also wanted to be able to support a lot of stuff in the philanthropic space, which I found, you know, if you, if you work for an organization, it's hard to sort of do both because you still got to be profitable. Um, and the challenges I had, I mean, I started out doing training and then identify the tech stuff. So the first part was identifying how do we create scale from a revenue perspective to then, um, to then give us the freedoms to be able to go and do other things. And if you do that, and I found like for being the director without having any external, even from a, a raising capital perspective, I didn't raise capital. You know, I bootstrapped this whole thing um, and, and made our change and our, our feedback into the, the county and trafficking stuff based on our success. And that means I don't have to answer to shareholders around, um, you know, those sort of different things. So, uh, so it was, it was, um, that was, that was, you know, a lot of the impetus behind what I wanted to do. Um, I'm, I'm a pretty ambitious, you know, kind of guy in terms of just trying to get after it. And, um, and then, yeah, so that was, that was my, my decision-making cycle anyway. And I had the expectation. I said, I'm going to give it a go. And if I fail, I'm going to pick myself up and, and, and try something different. Um, if I need to, do a different iteration where I work for someone else. That's I, I, I'm the, I'm the probably the annoying guy that, that everything's a positive. There's always a positive, you know, it's like if I ask something, okay, well, I learned heaps and there's something <laughs> as corny as it sounds like in, in my family, you know, with our young kids, our thing is you never fail. You only learn. Right. So um, even when you fall, learn something new and um, you know, we, we pick it up and we keep going. And so I, I had that approach. I was like, okay, well I'll see how long this goes. Money's obviously a, a key part. You got to, still got to pay the bills, right? So if I needed to, I'd transition somewhere else. I'd learn. I'd see what I can do next, and then I'd, I'd get after it again. So, um, yeah, driving my own my own path in terms of uh, where I can add value was, was one of the attractions for me anyway, doing it. That's a golden piece of advice, Chris. That's, uh, that's really, really, really awesome. I, I kind of wish I would have had somebody that could have told me that kind of thing when I was, when I was transitioning. And someone to just sort of say, well, you know, have a go at it, give it a try. Um, I think yeah. that's that's just that's just wonderful advice. Yeah, no, no, no one told us either. I mean, I had a really supportive family, which was which was good. Um, mm. and, and you know, my, my wife's amazing, and she's she said the same. She said, you know, you're not going to be happy working for someone else. Give it a crack. So just just went for it, um, and you'll you'll define yourself on on how you handle the things you fail at and um and yeah here we are now and things are going well but i'm also completely realistic things could turn on their head you know i mean the pandemic didn't uh, affect our line of business but there could be something else next time and so it's just one of those you know always seeing the positive and being ready to adapt to that that next thing um and that's just that positive mindset so yeah thank you so much <laughs> no all good thanks for being on the show chris and remember if you or any of your friends have a story that you think would be interesting to be shown on this podcast, please reach out to either Mel or myself. Our LinkedIn's will be in the bio below. We'd love to talk to you and hear your story. Thanks.